0: Well, please have your Bibles open, uh, Joshua chapter 7. And before we come to those verses, let's all pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you that this is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. But Lord, as we come to it now, we are conscious that left to ourselves, we cannot gain from its study. So we pray that you would come by your spirit now. That you would come and speak to us, and teach us, and change us, and make us the people we ought to be. Father, meet with us now. We pray, in Jesus' name, Amen. I wanted to start uh, with a couple of stories from years and years ago, when my children were little. Uh, They used to have class assemblies. Now I. I guess they still do, I don't don't know. But certainly when our kids were at school, they used to have class assemblies. And when I was going through this passage, there were two in particular uh, which came into my mind. Uh, The first one was one our James was involved in. And they were doing the theme for the assembly was Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Now, I guess most of us are familiar with the story of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. The little boy, Charlie Bucket, who finds the golden ticket to go into Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. And they were going through the, uh, the story and a little boy was playing Charlie Bucket. And he came to the part where he had to open the, the, the chocolate paper and find the golden ticket. Now, I imagine beforehand, the teacher would be saying to him, look, this is really exciting. This is like all your birthdays and all your Christmases all rolled up into one. Just think it's really exciting and that's what this is like. You know, a couple of years ago, I was, I was I was on the door in our church the first week in December, and we meet in the leisure centre. And the leisure centre had put one piece of tinsel up to celebrate Christmas. Yeah, obviously splashed out, you know, with cutbacks I think. and things. And it was there. And anyway, I was on the door, and this family came in, uh, four little children, and one of the boys looked up and saw this tinsel and went, "Whoa, it's Christmas!" Like, and ran into church, as I'm sure we all do every Sunday. Uh, that's what he did. And I imagine that was the sort of thing the teacher was trying to get over to this little boy. That's how excited you've got to be. And so he came, and he opened it. open up, and there was the gold thing inside. And he pulled it out, and he went, hurrah, hurrah. I have found the golden ticket. And then this is the genius part. He paused, and he went, hurrah, hurrah. And it was like, brilliant. Laurence Olivier, eat your heart out, you know. And we'll see the significance of that a little bit later. The second one was our girls were doing Noah's Ark. And this time, it wasn't so much the children. It was more the the, the headmistress, because they they did the the pictures of animals and things and sang songs. And when it was finished, the headmistress came out and said, well, well done, you know, what a lovely story that is, Noah's Ark. That's one of my favourite stories, because it's so nice. And I sat there and thought, well... As important as the story is, and as significant as it is in biblical history, I wouldn't really call it a lovely story. It's a story about a world that is so wicked, that is so immersed in sin, that a gracious and merciful God has to wipe out everyone, apart from Noah and his family. And I thought of that because when we come to this passage as well, I don't suppose anybody could really describe this as a lovely story. In the previous chapter, chapter 6, we have the very well-known story of the fall of Jericho. Now, if like me, you were brought up in Sunday school, you'll know the story of Jericho. We were told it loads of times. But again that's a story about the wholesale destruction and slaughter of an entire city. And when we read that, and when we come to this chapter, there are lots of people who will scratch their heads and say, well, how can this be? Certainly, there are lots of cynics today who will point to passages like this in the Old Testament and say, how can you believe the Bible when there's things like that in it? And certainly, maybe there's a few Christians who have problems with passages like this. Well, I want to look at this chapter this evening under the heading of the shocking truth about sin. See, here we are in the book of Joshua. The book of Joshua is a story of the children of Israel entering and settling into Canaan, into the promised land. It's quite a symmetrical book. The first 12 chapters are all about the conquest. The second 12 chapters are all about the division of the land amongst the tribes. But when we come to any book in the Bible, we have to ask the question, why was it written? And there are two reasons I can see. One reason this book was written was to answer questions. Again, going back a few years when uh, my son was about three or four, there was a big bin strike in Liverpool. He may remember it, but it was so bad that on Garston Park, whereby we live, people were piling bin bags onto the park. I don't know if this was like someone just did it or whether it was the official instructions, but whatever. There were these massive mounds of black bin bags. And one day I was walking across the park with him and he looked over at these bin bags and he said, Dad what would John Major make of that? And I said, (laughs) I don't know why he said that, but you know he was a strange kid. (laughs) But I imagine in Israel, there were lots of little kids just like him. And they would look around and say, well, that pile of stones over there, why are they there? Well, this book will answer that question. Or they would look at Rahab and say, well, why, she came from Jericho. How come she's living with the children of Israel? The book of Joshua has the answer. There's the Gibeonites. How come they're still here? we meant to drive all the tribes out. Again, the answer will be found in this book. So it was written to answer questions. But more importantly, for you and for me, this book is written to remind us that God keeps his promises. That God keeps all of his promises. He has promised to give this land to Abraham's descendants. And now he is fulfilling that promise. He has promised to punish the sin of the Canaanites. And now he's fulfilling that promise as well. And although there are many things that are different today. The, the, the way in this situation. I mean Israel was a theocracy. Israel was being used uh, as a tool of God's judgment. It's not teaching us that we, we should stone and burn people who steal something. That's to misunderstand, that's to misapply. But what is it trying to teach us? Well, I want to split our time into two. First of all, we'll look at the plot. We'll look at the narrative, understand what actually happens. And then we're going to look at the principles. The principles about sin that might be shocking... But they are principles we all need to know, we all need to understand, we all need to rightly apply. So number one, we have the plot. What's it all about? Well, firstly, it's about, verse one, disobedience. As I said in the previous chapter, we've had one of the greatest uh, military triumphs ever. The mighty city of Jericho has fallen. You know, 40 years before this incident, uh, if you turn back to the book of Numbers in chapter 13, 14, there's the the, the time when the 12 spies are sent out into the land. And Joshua and Caleb come back and say, this is brilliant, let's go. But the other 10 come back and they say, well, you know, the people are giants. The cities are massive. And Jericho was the biggest of the lot. and there's a word used a lot which he mentioned in the reading this word accursed and it's used a lot in chapter 6 and it's used here in chapter 7 and verse 1 now that word accursed is the Hebrew word harim and when they came to translate the uh, the Old Testament when they first translated it into Greek they took the word to harim and they, they translated it as anathema that's why we get accursed but harim is also the basis for the word harem. Now I guess we know, vaguely know what a harem is. It's a place that is set apart for the sultan or the king or whatever to keep all of his wives, and it, it's set apart from everyone else. What a curse means here is, this is a place that is set apart for destruction. And in a single day these massive walls that they had all their trust in, collapse. I read one article on it. It was yesterday that what happened was there was an earthquake and the walls fell in. Whether that's right or not, I don't know. The man writing the article said, well, the reason that is because if they just fell down, they were so big that the soldiers would still have a struggle getting over them. So there must have been some way that God flattened them. But whatever it was, that's what happened. And the end of chapter 6, verse 27 says, So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout all the country. Can you picture the scene? Here's this fantastic victory. And now it's time, put your slippers on, get your cigar out. After all, what could possibly go wrong? And whenever we hear that phrase invariably the next word we hear chapter 7 verse 1 but and there's this man Achan who's taken stuff from Jericho now had he been warned well look back to chapter 6 verse 18 this is Joshua speaking and you by all means keep yourselves from the accursed things lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things and make the camp of Israel a curse. Now that's fairly clear, isn't it? I don't think any of the soldiers put their hands up and said, Well, I don't really get what you mean by that. You know, there's a scene in the, um, the programme, the Royal Family, where the, the, the son brings his girlfriend home for the first time. And that's always going to be nerve wracking. But even worse for him, she's a vegetarian. And all the family are like, We're vegetarian. And the puzzling over what on earth it can give her to eat. And the grandma sitting there says, Well, can she have wafer thin ham? Because you know it's only thin, it's only little <laughs> And I, I don't think anyone here was saying, Well, can we just take a little bit of stuff? Is there any sort of case involved? Yeah, I think it was mentioned. And the result is God's anger blazed, burned against Israel. Because of disobedience. Number two, verses two to nine. This is about defeat. Joshua sends his spies out to Ai. And I say, yeah, it's, it's, it's easy. Just send a few. How many? Well, 3,000. Again, I read an article that said the Hebrew word for 1,000 also means, it was very similar to the word for contingent. And this man was suggesting that a contingent is 15 men. And he thinks they only sent 45 men and that's why 36 being killed, was so disastrous? Well, I don't know if that's right or wrong, but certainly the people panic. They were expecting to go right through the land and suddenly they have been defeated. That's why they're panicking. And verse 5, you know, it's very descriptive, isn't it, when it says, their hearts melted and became like water. Why did they lose? Well, again, I've read articles that say, well, look, we read through this and we're not told that Joshua prayed. Well, that's true. We're not told he didn't pray either. Well, yeah, that, that, that has a point. Uh, others have said, well, the tactics they used were so naive, they just went straight up to AI. Well, the tactics around Jericho weren't, weren't that great, were they? They said the spies were overconfident. Maybe they were. But really, those explanations are missing the point. Verse 1 explains the defeat completely. Because God's anger burned against his people. But of course, Joshua is totally unaware of this. And he comes before God and he complains Why has this happened? And it strikes me as you read Joshua's prayer that, you know, when things happen that seem bad and unfair and wrong. Very often the answer is, we don't know the whole story. Certainly that's the case here with Joshua. From what he was saying, it seems reasonable, but he didn't know the whole story. And of course the greatest example of this is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here, here is the one who went about healing the sick and caring for the needy and looking to the poor and went about doing good. And he's taken by wicked men and he's put to death. Surely God has lost control. Surely he's got it wrong but we know that he hasn't. So there's disobedience, there's defeat. Thirdly, there's discovery. There's discovery. Verse 10, the Lord comes along and it's almost like he says to Joshua, "You know, get up soft lad, what are you doing down there? And in verse 11, there's this whole list of things that are wrong. Now again, if we look in the, in the original Hebrew, the same word is used over and over again, it's the word gam, which means also. I mean, the translators use the word "for" and "and", and fair enough. But really, it's the same word. So we're saying there's this, and there's this, and there's this, and there's this. Again, if I can use an illustration from uh, a sitcom, there's a programme "Faulty Towers" you might have heard of. And in one of the, the episodes, a health inspector goes into the hotel, and he's got this long list of things that have gone wrong in the hotel, in the kitchen. So there's, there's broken seals on the fridge. They're, they're storing uh, raw meat above dairy products, so the blood's dripping down into it. There's, there's suspect handling procedures going on, and also there's two dead pigeons in, in the water loft. There's all sorts wrong with it. And he's going down this long list, and Basil keeps going, "Oh, okay, we know about that." Yeah, trying to interrupt him, and he finally finishes the list, and Basil says, "Otherwise, okay." And it seems to be like, they, you know, there's so many different things here that are wrong. And this case thing has to be dealt with. And so we have this long process where the 12 tribes are pulled out and then the clans and then the households and then the individuals. How did they do this? Well, maybe they drew lots. We're not told, are we? Maybe they used the urim and the thumbing. And you might wonder, Well, why didn't God just say, actually, Joshua, it's him? Well, we're not told. But couldn't it be to give Achan a chance to cough up? To give Achan a chance to say, well, actually, yeah, it was me. I've done wrong. And some might say, well, he did confess. Well, yeah, he does, but only after he's been singled out. And also in verse 21, he calls the, the, the things that he's taken, he calls it plunder, spoils. You see, he saw Jericho still as a prize to be earned. Not as something that is under the curse of God. And so Joshua comes along. And you know, Joshua's a great leader. And we see that in verse 19 because all this trouble this man has caused. These these men have gone to the death because of this man. But he's not vindictive. He just says, Come on, tell me. Verse 20, 21, Achan confesses, I saw this beautiful garment and the, this lifetime worth of gold and silver. And it might have looked cool, and it might have looked valuable. But it was almost certainly used in idolatry. You know, Jericho was big and tactically important. That's not why it was destroyed. It's because its sin had reached full measure. And so Achan and everything he has and all of his family, all his possessions, are taken out, they're stoned and they're burnt. And as I said, people look at that and say, well, is that a little excessive? Well, here's the thing. He's taken to himself the cursed stuff. So when he's done that, Achan is now treated like Jericho. Totally destroyed. Now that's a tough passage, I know. But what are the principles we can draw from it? The principles about sin. Well, number one, there's a danger in taking privilege for granted. You know, in the previous chapter... Uh, we read about Jericho we read about uh, the lady Rahab and I don't think it's an accident I don't think it's a coincidence that we have Rahab in one chapter and Achan in the next we're meant to look at these people and compare them here's Rahab she's a prostitute she's the one who hid the spies now you might ask well why did the spies stay with her well There were no hotels where there were no travel lodges in Jericho. And surely this would be a perfect place to hide. No one's going to make eye contact. So that's why they hid there. So there she is. She's a Canaanite. She's from Jericho. And yet her and her family are not just spared, are not just saved. Because what happens to Rahab? Well, she marries into the children of Israel. She marries a man called Salmon. And from them is descended Boaz. And from Boaz is descended King David. And from David, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's this woman who has nothing. And yet she's in the line of Christ. And here's Achan. Well, Achan's from Israel. He's not just from Israel. He's from Judah, the head tribe. Achan's mum and dad would have seen the plagues. Would have seen the Red Sea. Would have seen the Ten Commandments. Do you not think when he was a kid growing up, they talked with him? Didn't have a telly to watch, did they? And besides, they were commanded to do that. Of course they talked to him. Achan himself, fed by manna, crossed the Jordan, had seen Jericho fall. He'd listened to Moses. He'd been under the command of Joshua. He'd been given clear instructions. He had everything Rahab had next to nothing. And yet Rahab is established forever. And Achan and all that he had is wiped out. So what about you and me? You know, here you are in church on a Sunday evening. Well, that puts you in quite a small minority, I'd say, in our country. Here you are in a church where you will hear the gospel week in, week out. But there is a God who is holy, that we are sinners. And the only way we can be right with God is through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, through turning from our sin and trusting in him, in him alone. And you'll have heard that if you come to this church. And there are millions of people in this world who don't have that. And there are hundreds of thousands of people in this city who don't have that. So I guess it's fair to say that in terms of privilege... You and I have far more in common with Achan than we do with Rahab. Therefore, the question is, are you trusting in Christ? Have you repented? Have you turned from your sin? Do you have faith in him? Do you understand that in his life and his death and his resurrection, there is hope? In fact, the only hope. If yes, well, grace, there's more for you to learn from this passage? If no, well, you need to take this principle for heart, to heart, that there is danger in taking privilege for granted. Principle number two there is a distinct pathway of sin. What do I mean by that? Well, we don't need to speculate because in verse 21, Achan tells us himself he says he saw the spoils. And saw what they were he coveted them and then he says I took them I saw I desired I took does that sound familiar they're the same three verbs that were used in Genesis chapter 3 when Eve says I, I, I saw the fruit it was desirable to eat and I took it two things to notice this starts with what is seen. Achan sees the stuff. Are you a Christian? Well, be careful what you watch. Be careful what you read. Sin is so easily provoked by what you see. You know, the Bible doesn't give us detailed rules. You know, we mentioned before, I've been... A long time since I used to come to Belvedere. But when I can remember as a teenager being told, you know, watch what you watch on the telly. Don't pick up the tabloids. Now, maybe the tabloids aren't such an issue nowadays, but certainly the telly is still there and the internet is is, is all pervasive. And we're not given detailed instructions on things like this, are we? But we are told that whatever is true or noble or just or pure or lovely or of good report, think on those things. Be careful what you see. I think these verses also say to you and me to watch out for covetousness. You know, this is three and a half thousand years ago. Have things changed? Well, let's jump forward to the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does he say? Well, he tells a parable about the sower. And he says that the riches and the pleasures of life will choke the spiritual life out of you. He says elsewhere, take heed and beware of covetousness. That's the parable of the rich fool. There's still plenty of those around today. And the love of things is the defining trait of our society. You know, a few years ago at Christmas, um, the department store Harvey Nicks ran a series of adverts. Now, I've never been to Harvey Nicks, I believe there is one in, in Liverpool, one, but sadly I missed out on, on that treat. But they, they, they ran this campaign. And it was a mock campaign for a, a series of items called Sorry I Spent It On Myself. And it'd be a series of scenes taken from, meant to be on Christmas Day. And it'd be like a mum and dad giving a, a gift to a little child, and he opens her up, and it's like a bath plug. <laughs> and, and sorry I spent it on myself. And the mum's standing there with like a new coat on it or whatever, you know. That was the idea of it that you get a little cheap present for somebody else so you can spend more on you. And the tagline at the end of the advert was a little something for them, a bigger something for you. And I think that captures the the spirit of our age. And there's this distinct path of seeing, wanting, and taking. And once we're on that path, we all get spiritual amnesia. So here's Aiken, he sees the gold. What about the care What about the promises you've been given? What about your experience in in, in the wilderness where God's provided for you? It's all forgotten. It's just shiny and he goes after it. Everything else is gone from his mind. And we all get attacks of spiritual amnesia where we forget the warnings and the promises and our past experience and just blunder on And we forget to seek first the kingdom of God. And we forget that this world is not our home and this world won't last. And sin makes fools of us all. So watch out for the pathway of sin. Principle number three, there is no privacy in sin. What do I mean by that? Well, first of all, I mean there's no such thing as a secret sin. You know, there's a hymn, isn't there, which says, my open sins, my secret sins can all forgive and be. And I understand what he means by that. You know, our open sins are the ones that everyone can see. Secret sins are the ones that only we know about. But in reality, there is no such thing as a secret sin. The Bible explains reality is that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks upon the heart. It's the reality that all things are naked and open to the eyes of him with whom we must give account and there could be few things more helpful in the Christian life this week than to remind yourself that there is no such thing as a secret sin. But this man also shows us there's no such thing as a private sin. You know, what makes the, the sin of Achan so terrifying is that he affects everyone. And what it's teaching us, if we cover up, if we try to, to carry on as if nothing has happened, we remove God's blessing. It doesn't just affect Achan, does it? What does verse 1 say? The children of Israel committed a trespass. The end of the verse, the, the anger burnt against the children of Israel, not just against Achan. Now, is that fair? Maybe you've had that experience when you were at school, you're getting kept behind. Maybe somebody, I don't know, has broken a window or something, and the teacher says, well, if you won't tell me who it is, you're all staying behind. And you'll go, oh, that's not fair. Well, that's the principle at that, stake here. The Bible is plain. We're dealt with as individuals, yes. But we're also responsible for one another. Now, that's very different from our Western society. You know, the individual being king, we're told, you know, I'll live my life the way I want to live, and it's my body and it's my life, and what goes on behind closed doors is nobody's business. It doesn't harm anyone. Well, that's not true here, is it? And there's no such thing as a private, as a secret sin. Fourthly and lastly, the fourth principle. I put this last, I thought maybe I should have put it first. It's certainly the most important principle we can gain from this passage. And that's this, God hates and will punish sin. If you only remember one principle, remember this one. You know, there are those around who tell us that the Old Testament, and the New Testament, well, they're a different story, they're not. The New Testament tells us the wages of sin is death. The New Testament tells us far more about hell than the Old Testament and Jesus more than anybody else. And if we look at this chapter and say, well, that's a bit harsh. Well, maybe that's because we have a small view of sin. And maybe we have a small view of sin because we have a small view of God and of his holiness. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ said, if, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye, gouge it out. Now, he's not saying we should mutilate ourselves. What he's saying is we have to take sin seriously. And here's the thing. The more we understand that God is holy and therefore must punish sin, then the fact that Jesus Christ came to the world to save sinners becomes not just good news, it's the best news anyone can ever hear. That's why I told that story right at the beginning. Too often we share the gospel and it's more like hurrah, hurrah when it should be yes. Because here is the implacable, ferocious, eternal anger of God against sin. And I am a sinner. And here is the gospel that says God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. And the shocking truth about sin is not its punishment surely that's what we'd expect from a perfect holy god no the shocking truth about sin is that forgiveness is offered in and through the lord jesus christ